Robinson Cano to the Mets, Encarnacion to the Mariners, Kluber out of Cleveland, Harper to the White Sox, free agent signings, trade acquisitions, winter meetings, and a whole lot more Major League Baseball talk comes your way right now. Let's begin now. That's right, everybody. This is the Long Ball Podcast with Andrew Brown. I am Andrew Brown himself. Glad that you could join me for what is technically my second episode, although the first episode was an introduction. This is the first full episode. And for those of you who don't know, this will be primarily a baseball podcast covering collegiate and professional baseball. Uh, I'm a big fan of talking with the leaders, the coaches, progressors in the industry of baseball, whoever that may be. I love to chat with them, to talk with them, to pick their brains and dive into the world of baseball through their eyes. And that's what I'm going to do. Uh, ultimately, my goal is to get every episode with uh, with a different guest on to talk about all things baseball. But also, I should stop there because I'm also a big fan of just sports in general. And if there's a good story, a great personality, I, I want to interview that. I want to talk about that. And I will do that from time to time, regardless of the sport. But again, this is primarily a baseball podcast, collegiately and, and Major League Baseball-wise. And for this second episode, technically the first full-length episode, I will be talking Major League Baseball and the offseason that is occurring, a crazy offseason at that. Now, I could talk baseball till I'm blue in the face and then some. But there is so much going on throughout this offseason alone, all the way stemming from the the GM meetings all the way through this week, which uh, had concluded the winter meetings and the Rule 5 draft, which which took place on Thursday as well. So a ton going on there, a lot to digest. And you know what? I thought what better way to digest it all in a safe manner than with the one and only Wayne McDonald Jr. of Forbes, SportsMoneyForbes.com. This is an individual who has been seen on NBC, Fox, MLB Network, and has been involved in many publications like the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, USA Today, every uh, every publication you can think of within the city of New York. He has been there. He's also achieved the rank of Clinical Professor of Sports Management and served as an academic chair for the Program Development of Special Initiatives for New York University's Sports and Society Department. He is a guy that is by far one of the best baseball minds in the business. Glad to have him on the show. Glad he could grace the show with his presence. And, uh, of course, I know you'll enjoy this conversation just as much as I will. Wayne, thank you so very much for taking the time to join us. It's always a great pleasure to talk with you and just talk what baseball has to offer. It's never a dull conversation with you. 
Oh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, this is going to be a great time. A lot of uh, things to go through uh, with, the, with the meetings and everything. Yes, there has been a ton, a ton to pack in. I think the last time we spoke was uh, either at the end, towards the end of the season, uh, right around World Series or just after. So we've had so much that has transpired from the GM meetings and, uh, of course, as we talk about the winter meetings. But there was one uh, one little bit of old business just to kind of take a look at, and, and it involves the new new Mets general manager Brody Van Wagen. And I wanted to get your take on this first before we go any further. You know, there's been so many, I guess, different changes in baseball. Yeah, you take a look at the, how the managers of teams are utilized in terms of person, you know, how they interact with players and how they interact with analytics. And now you have a. a, a now a general manager who has really had no experience in that field but has been around baseball what is your take on just the sheer hiring of van wagon and and does this hiring show you any difference in the culture or the trends that baseball is putting out there these days well i think what we've seen in baseball probably in the past 10 to 15 years in particular and all these seismic shifts we've seen it in the dugout with regards to the types of managers that are now managing, you know, gone are the days of the Mike Stoshes and the Buck Shaw Walters, and now we're getting a whole new breed kind of coming in with Joe Madden really being the elder statesman of the group. And obviously we've seen all of these massive changes with regards to general managers from the Theo Epstein's of the world and the Billy Beams of the world to the Ivy League educated uh, quantitative analysis background you know, late 20s, early 30s, general managers coming through the game. And, you know, we, we've seen pros and cons with all of it. But with someone like Brody Van Wagenen, it, it's it's fascinating, if you ask me. To your point, uh, he's been around baseball probably for the better part of 20 years, uh, representing some of the top names in the game over that period of time, uh, both with CAA and then with uh, Rock Nation working with Jay-Z for some period of time. And to me, it was a real shock for the Mets because the Mets needed to do something big. Uh, When you follow someone like Sandy Alderson, who was highly uh, respected and regarded in the game, but you have to be very honest, too, the Wilpon family did suffer from the Madoff uh, situation. And that set them back further than they probably would have publicly stated. And... You know, the Mets, I, and this is probably a strong word, and I don't mean it literally. You know, they almost became a laughing stock in New York because they would see what their crosstown rivals, the Yankees, were doing. And the Mets fans began frustrated that the Yankees were constantly in on things and the Mets weren't. Well, bring in Brody Van Wagenen, and we know right away there's going to be a lot of spice. There's going to be a lot of flavor. It's a risk. Um uh, but here's the thing that I think Van Wagenen brings to the table. He's an agent at heart. He knows how to negotiate. He knows what it's like to be in the room. He knows it from the player's perspective. Now he's learned it from the ownership perspective of how this all works. And I think the Mets need to do something big. This is a calculated risk. And what we've seen so far is Van Wagenen is unafraid. He's willing to put his nose in the situations. He's willing to make some bold moves, as we've seen, whether it be the familiar deal for $30 million or Cano or going that route. 
And only time will tell if it actually works. But, you know, early indications are he's going to be aggressive. And I think that's what the Mets really need at this point in time is to be aggressive and also seize an opportunity within the National League East. Once again, everybody, we have the one and only Wayne McDonald Jr. of Forbes Sports Money, Forbes.com. Now, uh, talking about those Mets, and man, a lot of big, as you were alluding to, a lot of big moves happening. Obviously, Cano coming over, Diaz coming over. You mentioned $30 million for Familia. Uh, a lot of, I mean, a lot of impactful moves, but uh, in terms of Cano, you know, that's a big contractor still taking on with him. It was st- still a lot of guaranteed money on the table that they have to do. And uh, his defensive numbers have, you know, with age, been start- been declining here. I-, I believe it was his worst defensive metric season uh, he's had in the past five seasons. Uh, so in-, in terms of Cano coming in, uh, is do you see the money being an over- or overwhelming factor to his performance? How well do you see this playing out in the end? To me, money's always a, a legitimate concern. Uh, and when you look at Cano, he's got five years, and I think something like $120 million in that general neighborhood left, and it's all guaranteed money, as you said. And this is a ball player on the wrong side of 30. <laughs> and that, those are legitimate red flags. The defensive metric, legitimate red flags. The suspension, the 80 game suspension last season for the PEDs legitimate red flag. But I'm also a firm believer in second chances and a change of scenery and what that can do. I believe Robinson Cano coming back to New York will be a shot of adrenaline for him because I think he really never wanted to leave New York in the first place, but the Yankees weren't going to give him the $240 million 10-year deal that the Mariners were. And and the Yankees probably looked at some red flags, whether it had been the lack of hustle or the defense and the age and, and those matters. But the Yankees made a mistake and they signed Jacoby Ellsbury. So they're in a similar situation with a ball player like that. But I think in Cano's case, he needed a change of scenery. He needed to be in an environment that he was familiar with. And I also think he looks at it as clean slate. And I think the Mets look at it as, okay, we're getting a brand-name ball player who fans in New York know very well. He's had success in New York. Maybe we can recapture some of that old glory that he had with the Yankees and that shot of adrenaline, and maybe we can have something here. The only person that can tell us this is Robinson Cano himself, and we'll see by his performance. But – from our perspective as outsiders and, you know, commentators and analysts on this, you know, if for someone who's had his ups and downs both on and off the field over the past couple of years in Seattle, this is a rebirth for Cano. And I, I do believe that he's going to take full advantage of it, knowing what the stakes are and the opportunity to be the guy to help catapult the Mets back to the postseason and and back in taking the back pages of the New York tabloids away from the Yankees. And I think that's an attractive thing for Cano. And then, Wayne, you you talk about the, the, the aggressive spending that they are doing here. Um, what, what does that show you about the Mets, about where they're, what they're looking at, where they're planning on going? What does it show to you about where they've come now with, with the ability and wanting to spend that money? 
I think what it is, it's the Van Wagner influence. Uh, the Wilpon family is very conservative by nature. And then you throw in the atrocities that what had occurred with the, the Bernie Madoff matter, not only just for the Wilpons, but for thousands of other people he had uh, adversely affected. But, you know, the Mets have had some bad contracts. You know, case in point, they're still paying for Bobby Bonilla. <laughs> you know, so that's July 1st is a happy Bonilla day where he gets about $1.2 million in the mess and he'll get that till I think like 2035 or something like that. Um, so the Mets don't have the best of track records where they have signed ball players and they have flourished with these long term deals where, you know, uh, you know, across town rivals with the Yankees, you know. They got to their Derek Jeters. They had their Mike Messina contract. They had uh, a plethora of ball players that turned into these iconic Yankees and, you know, made monumental differences. So I think now the Mets are at a point where, hey, <laughs> Jacob DeGrom wins the Cy Young Award and basically gets zero run support for an entire year. Noah Syndergaard is one of the best flamethrowers in the game. I, I did something quick the other day just out of curiosity. I think Syndergaard threw like 2,400 pitchers last season. 850 of them were at least 97 miles per hour or, or faster. And, you know, I think Mets fans are getting frustrated. The Mets locked all this money into Cespedes. Cespedes is probably going to be out till August, maybe September of next year. And they're seeing the Braves are getting better. And the Braves are getting better with young talent and homegrown talent. The Phillies are going to spend money. They're getting better. They signed Andrew McCutcheon. They're in on Machado. They're in on Harper. The Nationals get Corbin on top of Strasburg and um, Scherzer in that rotation. The Marlins are in a rebuild. But the Mets are looking at it from perspective of this is a highly competitive division. We got to step up. And if we don't, we're going to become irrelevant again, not only in the National League East, but in New York City. And once again, everybody, it is Wayne McDonald Jr. of Forbes Sports Money, Forbes.com joining me now. And as, before we dive even deeper into the winter meetings and even more trade discussion here, Wayne, I want to talk on a discussion that you've written about, that I've written about, that's been well talked about in the last couple of days. And that's the induction of Lee Smith and Harold Baines into the MLB Hall of Fame. The Today's Era Committee voted them in. You have to get at least 12 votes. Both of them did that. And while I don't think a lot of people will argue with Lee Smith here, who, who held the saves record with 478 all the way up until 2006, once I believe Trevor Hoffman eclipsed that. But, but I think the individual a lot of people are having disdain with is Harold Baines making it in. And honestly, Wayne, I'm going to tell you, I, I agree with all that disdain, not with well, not with Baines's character, but with his numbers. And, and I, you know, I'm all about comparisons at inappropriate times, and I think this is one of them because you'll take a look at Harold at Harold Baines' base war of the, over his 22 years. It's 38.7. 
Meanwhile, you have very qualifying individuals who have better numbers like Dale Murphy, who over 18 years put up 46.5 war. Lou Whitaker, 71 over 19 seasons. Keith Hernandez, 60.1 over 17 seasons. And that was just a number. And you could go down the line at least 10 to 15 individuals who have better war numbers than Baines. And also you take a look, Keith. speaking to Keith Hernandez, he is a guy with 60.4 total war and 100 128 OPS plus. He's not in the fame, Hall of Fame yet. He got gypped the last two years. Yet Baines at 121 OPS and at 38.7 WAR is not in. It, it, it's just frustrating there. And another thing, I think, I, I think when you take a look at comparisons as well. I hear a lot of people compare his home run mark. Well, Dale Murphy had 398 compared to 384 for him, and Bell, the, only the second player. And Albert Bell, only the second player to hit 50 home runs and over 50 doubles in a single season. You know, Baines never matched that. Baines hit over 30 doubles in a season only twice in his career. And yet, so that it's not just a small difference, but it really seems like a big difference between Baines and other deserving cast of characters. So uh, ultimately, to wrap this question up here, Wayne, what's the selling point? Why are we having... Harold Baines in the Hall of Fame instead of Dale Murphy and Keith Hernandez and the likes. Oh, this is a great topic, and I, I was really looking forward to be speaking with you about it. Um, to give you a little bit of my take on it, uh, last week when I was doing my prep work uh, for articles, obviously I put out a George Steinbrenner piece because I was a really big proponent of uh, his candidacy. And then, uh, the obviously, the Lee Smith-Harold Baines. Now, I will tell you in full honesty, my opinion has vastly changed since when I wrote the article on Sunday evening at 8.30 Eastern Time when the announcement was made compared to today. Now, I was kind of shocked because my initial thought process was, well, Baines and Will Clark and Oral Hershiser and Albert Bell and um, Lee Smith were put on the ballot. so. For me, the initial thought was there had to have been something there for them to have been put on the ballot. Now, my thought process was that I was of the belief that only George Steinbrenner had a legitimate chance of getting in. I didn't think Hershiser, Clark, Baines, or any of the other candidates. I, um, I thought maybe Lee Smith might have been a, 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 an outside chance just for the fact that Relief pitchers are being looked at this year because of Mariano Rivera. But when I heard Harold Baines' name, you know, after I put the piece out, it started to sink in with me. And I went, whoa, wait a minute. Um, it, it, it didn't make sense uh, because then I started to go through in my head all of these great ball players from the decade of the 80s and 90s that – were far better, but have not gotten any play. For instance, uh, a Lou Whitaker, uh, a Dwight Evans. I even go back to a Fred Lynn, a Bobby Gritch. And then I look at it from the perspective of the, some of the players currently on the ballot that are getting no love at all that deserve the love, like a Fred McGriff. And, you know, so right away, your mind starts turning that you know, without doing the deep dive, you know right away, 
have something doesn't make sense here. And then you start to hear uh, people like Tony LaRusso and, and the other people uh, start to give their analysis. And, you know, I heard a lot about game-winning RBIs. Well, if you're going to talk about game-winning RBIs in the decade of the 1980s, you darn well better be talking about Keith Hernandez. And Keith Hernandez was, I think, a far better ball player than Harold Bain. I think what we have to look at here, and, and it's a very honest exercise, the Hall of Fame is big business in baseball. A lot of people truly care about it. A whole subculture of research and analysis has popped up as a result. This is not a personal indictment on who Harold Baines is as a person. This is really an indictment on the process. And he had an outstanding career, 22 seasons, 2,800 career hits. But in my opinion, there was nothing outstanding from an individual perspective. No MVPs, no gold gloves, no you know, postseason accolades, none of the things that really separate it compared to other people that had been passed over time and time again. Now, if you want to be honest, too, on that committee, there was probably elements of cronyism because there were a lot of people associated with the Chicago White Sox who were on that committee who were probably big advocates of Baines. Uh, I, I think what this does is it makes us really rethink uh, what these committees going to look like going forward. And I'm hoping now that players like a Jim Cott and a Tommy John, when their time comes up in, in the coming years, they get the love, respect, and attention that they deserve because Harold Baines, is, I think, is, is a watershed moment in terms of what the veterans committees are going to look like going forward. And once again, everybody, Wayne McDonald Jr. of Forbes, MoneyForbes.com. Now, you mentioned about Keith Hernandez, and that was the next question for me. You know, we thought that this la- the, in the last round of voting for the Hall of Fame on, on the normal writer's bout that he might get in. There was a lot of talk of him getting in. Uh, of course, there was a lot, of course, with Chipper Jones and Jim Tomey, you know, that kind of muddled the waters a little bit. But there is some legitimate force behind the thought that, Hernandez may make it in. And now that you have Harold Baines getting in the likes, and again, as, as we both have mentioned, it's not an indictment against him, but, I mean, do, doesn't this give you at least a little bit of optimism knowing that the next time around uh, Keith Hernandez could very well make it in, knowing that ben, uh, knowing that Baines just got in? I'm concerned overall, to, to be very honest, just for the perspective of I believe that the baseball writers and their voting – they do an outstanding job. It's a very hard, difficult process. And they get their ballots just after Thanksgiving. Maybe, you know, the week after Thanksgiving, they're getting their ballots. They have until December 31st, or around that time period, to submit them. So they essentially have a month where they have to go through anywhere between 30 to 40 candidates who are on the ballot every year. And they only have 10 spots. That's a very, very difficult exercise. And we have seen so many tremendous ball players not get the love and respect because of a numbers game. You know, when, when you have a class of, you know, Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin, and then you have classes like John Smoltz and Pedro Martinez, and, you know, all, all these numbers, it has an adverse effect. And I think players like, Mike Messina, Edgar Martinez, Kurt Schilling, 
Fred McGriff, players of that ilk, who when we look back and say players from the decade of the 90s and the 2000s, these were phenomenal ball players. They're not first ballot Hall of Famers, but they are Hall of Famers. And the baseball writers have done a phenomenal job, I think, in embedding that process, and I tip my cap to them. My problem now is what we witnessed last weekend with regard to this modern era committee is that the, the cronyism is back because no one had Harold, Harold Baines on their radar and all of a sudden he popped up. And the legitimate argument is a guy like Keith Hernandez. Keith Hernandez was probably, next to Don Mattingly, the two best defensive first basemen in the decade of the 1980s. And they played in a big-time market. They were transforming the ball players. And Keith Hernandez can't get a sniff at Cooperstown. And, and that's very frustrating because now Baines is and, – and I, I, I want to reiterate what you said as well. This is not an indictment against Harold Baines as a person. This is really more an indictment of the voting process of how uh, it, it came about because he had an outstanding career, but it was not, in my opinion, it was not Hall of Fame worthy. And now I really do believe that there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure on these committees going forward to get it right because this was this caused such an upheaval. And, you know, I, I think the, the big thing that you're going to have to look at is the crony the cronyism uh, element of it, because last year the Veterans Committee got it right with regard to Trammell. We can have that uh, debate on Jack Morris, depending upon where you stand on the analytics, but there was a feeling that last year they got it right because of Alan Trammell, and he deserved it. And, they, and, and everyone looked and said, hey, look, the baseball writers overlooked them. The Veterans Committee, at uh, what was the, was the Today's Game Era Committee, uh, fixed it. And we were okay. This year, it's a whole different ball game, and, and and this is what caused that animosity and friction. And once again, everybody, you're listening to the Long Ball Podcast here with Andrew Brown. My guest, the one and only Wayne McDonald Jr. of Forbes Sports Money Forbes dot com. And now, as we dive back into the winter meetings here, aside from talking about the Mets and their moves, you know, Wayne, has there been anything that has really stood out to you? I mean, whether whether it's been moves or lack of moves so far within the winter meetings? Well, the, the funny thing is I was talking to a few people this morning and said that my favorite move of the, uh, the offseason so far occurred right before the winter meeting. And that was the Paul Goldschmidt trade to the St. Louis Cardinals. I, I thought that was a brilliant trade by the Cardinals, and it's going to pay off dividends. I, I think what we've seen, and I've been to winter meetings for over a decade, and the one thing I have noticed, the winter meetings have gone from being this amazing spectacle with a flurry of trading activities and you know, all of these crazy, amazing things that baseball fans would gravitate towards where you would actually see these people up close and personal. Oh, the Brian Cashman's in the world, the Theo Epstein's. Hey, they're in the lobby and you're talking to them and having this connection to now where all these executives, they check into the hotel, they go up to these luxury suites, they spend 12 hours in the luxury suite, they come down for dinner, they go back up to the luxury suite, and everything is done via texting and instant messaging. There is no longer that 
big element of a, of a show. Uh, I go back a couple of years ago in Dallas, Texas, when uh, the the Marlins made the big splash with Jose Reyes and Heath Bell, and it really was a spectacle. And you were constantly going to these press conferences, and there was constant activity. Now, really, it, it, it's changed dramatically. Whether it be the, the structure of the collective bargaining agreement, whether it be everyone waiting to see where Manny Machado and Bryce Harper play out, uh, or is it really that there has to be something done to speed up the process? Because now we're hearing the possibility that Machado and Harper might not sign until the new year. And that was unheard of years ago because sometimes the thought process was, let's get these deals done before Thanksgiving. Uh, so I think we've seen an evolution where I don't want to say the winter meetings has lost a little bit of its luster. I think it's lost a lot of the excitement with the flurry of trades. Don't get me wrong. We have a ton of rumors, but we're not seeing the volume of trades that we had in years past at the winter meetings. And I think it's a lot of posturing in terms of finances and a wait-and-see approach to see where certain free agents fall before other teams uh, start to make offers on ball players. And once again, everybody, you're listening to the Long Ball Podcast with Andrew Brown and in association with Two for the Price of One Podcast with Andrew Brown and Nathan Poole. Joining us right now is the one and only Wayne McDonald, Jr. of Forbes, SportsMoneyForbes.com. Uh, and now, Wayne, another interesting topic that you and I have talked about and shared thoughts about numerous times over the last year is involving the relief pitching market. Now, last year, you saw one of the highest total gross dollar amounts spent on relief pitchers in history. In fact, 15 relievers landed at least $10 million or more in their free agent deals, all of them no less than at least $5 million per season, and six of them earned an an average annual value of at least $9 million. And it, the importance really seemed to go through the roof, especially with bullpenning and all that, and the opener coming through. But then you then the performances didn't really match up a whole lot. You saw Anthony Swarzak for the Mets. He, he was an injury riddled at times, just couldn't get consistent. You saw McGee come over to Colorado. He didn't do very well. Brian Shaw was, a, was, was basically half of the performances. His strikeout rate plummeted down. And, of course, you, you, you saw Wade Davis not not perform up to his standards in Colorado. So it, you saw a decreased bit in performance, yet come this year you see guys like Joe Kelly at two days ago who got a three-year $25 million contract in a world where we've only seen about five to six three-year deals for relievers in the past three to four off-seasons. So I guess a long-winded way of getting to the question here, Wayne, is with the performance that was put out by relief pitchers as a whole in 2018, do you see the resurgency? Do you see the value continue to go up on relief pitchers in the open market the way this year, the way we saw it last year? Well, I was really surprised by the Kelly deal, uh, the three years, uh, $25 million, because I know everyone went to the postseason. I went to the regular season and said, wow, okay, he had a you know really tough regular season, but you know he played the best when they, need, when they needed him the most. Um, 
I, I'll be honest. I was surprised by the familiar money because he's going to be a setup man. $30 million for a setup man, a, a, an average annual value of $10 million a year. That's a lot of money. Uh, in my opinion, there's a lot of quality relievers out there. David Robertson, Andrew Miller, uh, you're dealing with um, you know, players like that, Zach Britton. You know, the, the, to me, there's a lot of really good arms out there. Um, it's just, I think, going to be really a fit uh, more than anything else. I, I believe that we're going to see the reliever market start to pick up in momentum. Uh, because people are going to start to say, well, Familia got $30 million and Kelly got $25 million. Hey, I'm better than those guys. Maybe I can get 40 So I, I think the next guys that you're going to see kind of come off the board in terms of the relievers, I think David Robertson will probably be one. I think Andrew Miller is going to be another one. I think Zach Britton's going to be another one. Uh, I think Kimbrell is going to – that's going to take some time. I think he's looking six years. He's looking, you know, close to a, you know, nine-figure deal. I, I think uh, you, you're going to have to have a certain appetite for that. Um, I just don't see him moving as quickly as, say, the previous three that I had mentioned. Uh, the, the, just for the fact that I think it's going to be a pricing issue, not a, not a talent issue. And I, I, I think, any, like anything else, it's going to be based on team need and and, and leverage. You know, uh, we always get a kick uh, this time of year, the mystery team. <laughs> you know, I don't care if you're a, a third baseman, a center fielder, or a relief pitcher. That actually works. But I do believe we're going to see a little more movement for the reliever market in in the days ahead. Well, indeed, it will certainly be interesting to see how all that plays out. And you did mention a lot of great names on the market, including Rockies pitcher Adam Adovino, which has been getting drawing a lot of interest from the likes of the New York Yankees. And now with all the strong arms out there here, Wayne, this is a very interesting individual. He kind of reminds me of a kind of Tom Watson sort of-esque player, and now he's come through and just surged through the league here. Uh, in terms of him, I mean, does he have what it takes in your eyes? And does he have the appeal or more appeal than, say, the likes of a Kimbrel or of a Zach Britton? I mean, w- would they bring him in over those guys? Well, I, I, I think in the Yankees' case, you know, they, they're still trying to figure out things because uh, I'm still not sold that they're done with starting pitching, even though on paper it might look like that, you know, with Paxton and. Hap looks like that's going to get done uh, with Tanaka, Severino, and Sabathia. I still don't think that they're done because I think if a Corey Kluber, that market changes a little bit, I think the Yankees would be in there. Uh, I, I think really you have to see what's the best fit. And I don't think Kimbrell's a fit for the Yankees at this point because I think the Yankees are going to put a lot of money. Look, I think they're in on the Machado. And they're going to have to put a lot of money into that. Uh, I, I still believe that they might be in the market for another starting pitcher because I just don't see them going into the regular season with the five guys that we had just talked about. And I believe that the Yankees feel that they have flexibility in terms of the reliever market because there is quality out there. It's definitely quality. 
it's just, I think, their appetite in terms of how much they are willing to allocate to a reliever at this point in time because it, they have they have a, a wide variety of quality arms. I think it's just going to come down to a pricing matter and also age and injury. You know, some of these guys are a little bit older and they have some miles on them and some of them are recovering from injuries and whether or not, you know, that, that fits into the Yankees' plans. But I do believe that the Yankees are going to walk away with one of those four or five guys uh, in, the, in their bullpen. Once, once again, everybody, Wayne McDonald of Forbes, SportsMoneyForbes.com, joining us talking MLB offseason, the winter meetings, and more. Now, Wayne, I want you to play a little game with me called Crazy or Not Crazy. Now, bear with me on this one. I got it in my head, and it just seems to continue to roll with me right now. Bryce Harper to the Chicago White Sox. They're looking to build long-term. He's looking for a long-term contract. They have the money to spend. They have pitching prospects that seem to be highly coveted right now, especially in today's game. They have that. They have prospects of all varieties to work with here, especially coming out of that Chris Sale trade a couple years ago. So, So tell me here, play this game with me. Am I crazy for thinking that Chicago may be the landing spot for Bryce Harper? Not crazy at all. Uh, and from the from the perspective of the White Sox are a franchise that is in the midst of a rebuild. Uh, they have a lot of really young talent in their farm system. And it's not uh, a far-fetched idea by any stretch of the imagination. Also, too, Chicago is a major market, and he would be a crown jewel centerpiece for the White Sox. Uh, he would not be in a galaxy of superstars like, say, with the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox or any of these other franchises. And also, too, remember, with the Nationals, you know, there were a lot of other superstars on that team. You know, Max Scherz is a, a big-time ball player as well. I think there is the attractiveness of being in a major market, being the crown jewel centerpiece of the franchise that has done a tremendous amount of work over the past couple of years in a rebuild by bringing in a lot of young and talented ball players, And the timing might be right where – He's that veteran leader, that primary guy, and also, you know, gets what he wants in terms of contracts. So it's not far-fetched by any stretch of the imagination because look at the teams that we're talking about for Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. The White Sox and the Phillies in particular are two teams. Usually these conversations would be the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, and the Cubs. And those teams really aren't being discussed with great regularity. I mean, Brian Cashman basically came out this past week and said, we're not in on Bryce Harper. Scott Boris, a couple of days ago, you know, gave, the, gave his typical analogy about being in a hospital and checking out of a hospital with regard to the Yankees and Harper. So I, I think it's an intriguing place for Harper. Uh, I I think it's a place where he realizes that he he is the crown jewel. He's the centerpiece. He's the man there. He's going to get his money. This is a young team on the rise. 
He could be the difference maker. And I also do believe the moment last year, the Yankees traded for Giancarlo Stanton, Harper and Scott Boris had the thought to reevaluate and reassess the different franchises that, one, would be more than willing to entertain a conversation for 10 years in length, two, more than willing to entertain conversations of uh, dollar figures between 300 and $400 million, and three, still a major, major sports market and considered one of the big markets in baseball. And they're all right there. So by no means, to me, is that shocking or surprising. I think it's actually very intriguing. And once again, everybody, Wayne McDonald, Jr. of Forbes, SportsMoneyForbes.com here on the Long Ball Show with Andrew Brown. Now, I've been very interested, I know you have too, with how in the world the Tampa Bay Rays went from dismantling basically their entire roster to having, I believe, about four uh, four mainstays, or more, more actually more like three mainstays uh, over the last two years, still there to this day. And even then, C.J. Crone got let go. Uh, but still, they managed to hit 90 wins with, uh, with just a lot of, uh, I guess, loosely kind of players and a lot of great analytics behind them. They go out and sign Charlie Morton to a multi-year deal. I, uh, you know, that was interesting to me because he's on, he's kind of that wrong side of the age spectrum. Yet he, he's putting up one of his best, one of the best strikeout rates that he's had in a few years. He's putting up a great ratio strikeout to walk, and he's getting a lot of good ground balls out of it. I, I thought it was, I was kind of mixed on this kind of thing, but I, and I have a two-part question here. First, what's your, what's just your general analysis of Morton signing with the Rays, and what does this tell you about where the Rays are going and where they can be? To me, it was a head-scratcher, to be honest with you. Um, just for the fact that the, 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 the Rays are our Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde franchise for a variety of reasons. They're a franchise that's going to win 90 games. The way they do it is highly unconventional. It is arguably, next to the athletics facility, the least attractive major league professional sports facility, maybe in all sports. And they're having such a difficult time in that market trying to get a new ballpark going. And it seems like their current proposal is dead in the water. But they are steadfast in their belief that they're going to continue the bullpenning. They're, they're going to call it obviously called the opener, and but then you get that aspect, and then you go to the other end of the spectrum. They had the American League Cy Young Award winner in Blake Snell. So, my thought process was they probably realized that they weren't going to be in on Corbin, they weren't going to be in on Keuchel, they weren't going to be in on the Kluber trade rumors or the Bauer trade rumors. All these arms that are out there that are either being rumored to be traded or still out there in terms of free agency. Let's get someone who can pitch in our ballpark. And to your point, the ground ball rate, you know, let's not look at the age. Let's look at some of the analytics. And we, we know we're not going to be in on these other names, but this is a guy that can help. And maybe it will help us in terms of the rotation where we can save some arms in terms of the openers, where we're not going so heavy on it because they are married to that philosophy of the opener and that they're not going to put that much of an emphasis in terms of having 
five to six legitimate starting pitchers. So it actually, in, in, in the raised way, kind of makes sense for them. But for us, we're kind of scratching our heads that were there better options for a 90-win ball club. Well, and certainly a guy who has had his, by my accounts, his third worst year in terms of FIP and uh, in terms of war. Um, actually, not a whole, not horrible war with 3.1 uh, comparatively, but he's had better seasons. Yeah, certainly a head scratcher. And another head scratcher that I had and I was just really curious on I I thought when the Phillies traded Carlos Santana to the, the to the Mariners I thought the Mariners were getting a solid a solid individual a solid guy I thought he was the guy that really could take him uh, take him places of course I was kind of curious because earlier that offseason they had acquired from the A's a first baseman that they were pretty high on and they had, they had signed to a multi-year deal and so again there's kind of confusion there but then they go ahead and get rid of Santana and instead bring in Edwin Encarnacion and that one really kind of puzzled me because Encarnacion has gone up exponentially in strikeout rate is his second worst strikeout rate year of his career and his average right hovering right around there his war has been one of the worst it's been all year or all season Santana is not great in that aspect but that to me was a little bit of a head scratcher what do you make of that move I totally agree uh, it's kind of funny because I'm still trying to digest the trade you know uh my initial thought was when Santana went to the Mariners, that was temporary. You know, knowing what we've seen from Jerry Depoto in in recent times, uh, he has that fly by the seat of your pants and always looking to move players' mentality. And we saw yesterday he consummated that deal from a hospital bed because he was suffering from blood clots in his lungs. So I'm still really trying to wrap my arms around it because, you know, strikeouts are the concern. But, you know, some general managers and executives say, well, you know, we launch angles and exit velocity, and that's all part of the game right now. But when I'm seeing a ball player striking out more than 150 times in the season, if I'm an executive, that's a cause for concern for me, but that's just me. Uh and I almost kind of see it's almost like uh, the, the the Indians and Mariners are trading like-minded, similar ball players uh, for each other. And I, I I go back to I think the Phillies probably regretted that Santana signing, uh, and they probably looked at it from a perspective of from there. Hey, if we want to be in on Machado and Harper, we're probably going to have to do something. And, you know, the Mariners are always more than willing to trade with anyone. And the Mariners probably realize, okay, we can leverage this to get something out out of it. But, you know, they, they would probably look at it and say, we're losing Nelson Cruz. So let's try to kind of replace what Nelson Cruz had did offensively for them. So I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. I don't know if it will ever make total sense to me but you know i'm not surprised with that type of deal given that jerry depoto was involved in it 
And you know what? What's really interesting to me is kind of the complexity of the of the trade in its entirety. When you take a look at what all what happened, all went down. The three team trade, obviously, as we mentioned, the Indians, the Mariners, and the Rays. You know, I it kind of seemed interesting. The Rays they got back infielder Yandy, Yandy Diaz. Uh, they also got right-handed pitcher Cole Solzer. Uh, and I mean, individuals that they're going to look to grow, obviously. But then they they also, I believe, paid right around thirty forty million. I believe to the Mariners in that case. Uh, but man, it it kind of seemed like that was a very complex trade. And I'm not and I'm not a fan of winners and losers of this. Uh, I just don't know who came out and fared better in this whole thing. Oh, I totally agree. I, I think, you know, and we heard earlier in the week with uh, a, a three-trade proposal between the Yankees, Mets, and the Marlins involving Syndergaard and Real Muto, that it gets way too convoluted. And to me, that, that was a, just a very complicated trade where, and to your point, I, I don't like the labels winners and losers because we, we will not know until uh, the games start being played. But I'm just still trying to make sense of it. And how does this trade positively affect the three teams involved as well as all the players involved? Because did it have to be this complex? And was it really about dollars and cents? Or was it really about replacing uh, expected loss? Uh, So, yeah, uh, it's, it's... I didn't think it had to be as complicated as it was. Well, and certainly, yeah, like you like you were mentioning, maybe money had to do with that Mariners saving right around nine million dollars, I believe, in that. And uh, you know, nonetheless, uh, they're they're still the the contracts exchanged between Santana and and Encarnacion about a four million dollar difference there, but. Very interesting on the grand scheme of things. And again, everybody, as we continue to talk with Wayne McDonald Jr. of Forbes, SportsMoneyForbes.com, there's a conversation you and I had uh, a couple days ago regarding just starting pitchers. Now, obviously, that's always going to be a huge, Mark. And we've had big signings already. Uh, Patrick Corbin, as you had mentioned, uh, going to the Nationals. Uh, we've had we've had other you know big uh, big time rumors. Is spreading around here, uh, but first, I mean, what's the market like for you with starting pitchers right now? And who is, I mean, who's had the more impactful trade so far, or the future trade that you may see happening? I still think is the starting pitching market is predicated on what the Cleveland Indians do. Uh, I, I think. There is a legitimate concern about giving Dallas Keuchel a nine-figure contract. Uh, you know, we've even seen some articles and some analyses saying that you know Keuchel isn't the t- the type of starting pitcher that the game is evolving into. Uh, so there, there's going to be an interesting market around him. Uh, for me, it's about Kluber and Bauer. That, that to me that that's where the intrigue and fascination actually lie, because the Cleveland Indians are in a very uh, unique situation. They cannot financially compete with the likes of the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Astros uh, in, in the American League, but they're a highly competitive ball club with tremendous talent, and I think they have one of the best players in the game, Francisco Lindor. But 
they don't have enough money to go around to everyone. And you have two pitchers that are highly desirable, not only because of their immense talent, but because they're contract structures. Corey Kluber has, in my opinion, next to Madison Bumgarner, the friendliest franchise contract that I have seen in quite some time for a starting pitcher, where I think it's an absolute steal. And Trevor Bauer is under salary arbitration control for two more years. So right there, from the business perspective, as well as from the talent perspective, those are highly attractive assets and commodities that I'd rather go after than entertaining a conversation with, say, the likes of a Dallas Keuchel, who that might be a five-year, $100 million contract, where at least I know with Kluber and with Bauer, it's team control under highly favorable uh, financial circumstances. And it seems as if Bauer is on a great trajectory right now. And Kluber's Kluber, and that's one of the top five pitches in the game, and, and that's good for me. So I think there's more in the trade market than we will be in the free agent market, and I think it's all going to be predicated on what the Cleveland Indians wind up doing. And once again, everybody, we have the one and only Wayne McDonald Jr. of Forbes SportsMoneyForbes.com here on the Long Ball Show with Andrew Brown. Now, I thought there it was very interesting when you had Carlos Carrasco in the mix, and then they go out and end up signing him to a, a I believe, a, a multi-year deal, all that extending all the way through 2022 with a 2023 club option and a three million dollar buyout. I I thought at first when they kept putting Carlos Carrasco in the mix, you know, again he's he's uh, I believe 31 years old, guy on that wrong side at 30, so to speak. But you're you're now paying him 17 million, I believe, next year and 17 and a half in 2020 through that. I, I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, that you went out and paid that kind of a contract to Carrasco. If you're even in the even in the ballpark of thinking of getting rid of Bauer and Kluber, and I know the contracts are easy are a lot easier to move there. But I, I, I thought that, you know, with with Cleveland being more predicated on how can they have great pitching, and they and, and again, they do have a youngster coming up. Uh, his name eludes me for some reason right now, but they have, but he's long hair, kind of whirly, squirrely little guy. Yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. But, you know... Well, Cle- the, Mike Cle- Clevenger. Clevenger, yes, Mike Clevenger. And I know they have that coming up, and they have others, but, man, I thought that Carrasco was going to be in this mix, and then they go ahead and sign him. Here's how I would look at it, because this, this is a great conversation, and that's why it's always fun talking to you, because we can get into these great uh, takes on it. Where can you get your maximum value in the open market when you're dealing with other ball clubs? And you can get that through Kluber, and you can get that through Bauer. Now, if you were to go to Kluber or Bauer right now and say – talks about contract extensions and all this stuff, Bauer's going to probably tell you to go fly a kite because I, he's going to, he's the guy that's going to want to test free agency. You know, he's not going to want to, you know, he, he's the type of guy that I see at some point going back to the West coast. I see him pitching for the Dodgers at some point in time and getting paid that dollar. So he's a guy that they probably realize, you know what, we're not going to be able to sign him 
to a long-term contract extension. Kluber right now is, in his, you know, pushing his mid-30s. So by the time his deal is going to finish up, he's going to be like 35, 36 years old. So we're in a position where, you know, why would we go and even offer him a contract extension when we have him under control for a number of years, club control, franchise-friendly contract, but we got to do something with our pitching. So they probably realize, let's get Carrasco locked in. Let's not alienate the entire fan base. Let's get someone. But let's see what other pieces we can get. Can we get three top-flight prospects for Corey Kluber? What can we get for a Trevor Bauer that, one, is maybe a pre-arbitration eligibility situation with a ball play, which is very attractive, or you're going to get top-flight prospects where you haven't started their their, uh, major league clock yet. So that's why I think the decision was made for Carrasco over Kluber or Bauer because I think you could get far more premium value for those two pitches on the open market than you could for Carrasco. And again, everybody, as we're with the Long Ball Show, the Andrew Brown talking baseball in the winter meetings with Wayne McDonald Jr. at Forbes Sports Money, Forbes.com. And as we start to wrap things up here, Wayne, I was, I've been very, I've also been very interested but when, when you take a look at Colorado, it's a place where offense, you, you love to be there, you know, pitching, it can, it can be a nightmare at times. And then, you know, they've, they've had some hard times in, you know, last year, this off or excuse me, this postseason, you know, they they stormed into the postseason and kind of fizzled out there, uh, and now they have talks of possibly moving some of their biggest pieces or not retaining them. And for me, I think they could be contract friendly, but DJ Lemayhew uh, possibly not being in Colorado next year or in the next couple of years. I mean, what is there? What's the possibility that they retain the likes of Lemayhew and keep him there instead of him going to say like an LA? or New York or so forth? I think it's highly unlikely that he returns. I I think all indications are that he will be going somewhere else to play ball next season. I think in the Rockies' case, there is legitimate concern about Nolan Arenado because next year is the the, the, the free agent uh, offseason of Nolan Arenado. And I think the Rockies are one of those ball clubs that are competitive. We saw how good they can be, but to your point, I think you hit it you know, spot on. They stormed into the postseason, and then they fizzled out. Uh, you know, I go back to you know, a number of years ago when they, when they made their, their run to the World Series against the Boston Red Sox. I think it was uh, 2007, and they met the Red Sox, and the Red Sox just buzzed them. Uh, you know, where, where I think what it is, they get to the dance, but they can't kind of finish the deal, so to speak. And the National League West is a very tough division. And there's a lot of moving parts and, and things along those lines. Um, so I, I, I think there was a concern there. But I also don't think that um, they're going to have the financial wherewithal to keep some of these players like a, like a Mateu uh, and guys like that uh, because they're concerned about Arenado, and I think that's their legitimate worry at this point in time. 
And uh, very rightfully so. I mean, Arenado's uh, kind of like their face of the franchise right now. A guy who's, who's, who's been in the top 15, if not top 10, in war each of the last four seasons. <laughs> I mean, in fact, he's been top five. So he's, he is a legitimate threat, and I do see that. And it, it's Again, this is why we love uh, the baseball offseason. So many different things that could go on. And so many different, so many different scenarios. And one of the scenarios that that I uh, that I forgot to mention, I wanted to bring back again here, again with the Mets. You, you take a look at the bullpen that they have. And right now, I know it's early. There's still shifting to be made. There's still people to bring up and so forth. But they only have, I believe, one left-handed arm in that rotation. And it just seems like they've stockpiled righties, yet not a whole lot of lefties. I mean, what's the situation with the Mets and their bullpen? How do I mean, how do they kind of get out of that? And, I mean, how do they make sure they get contracts that will stick and not be an Anthony Swarzak type? The one thing that I've learned, you know, throughout the years with regard to the off season and and teams and building teams is that's a three hundred and sixty five day a year job. Um, so I, I guess in the Mets case, in a lot of, of ball clubs cases, you know, I'm not going to really make assessments until after spring training. So I, I do believe there's going to be a lot of movement and, and activity still. I think in the case of the Mets, you ask me honestly, I think they want to probably get this Real Muto situation rectified if they can land him. And then after that, kind of address their other concerns. Because I think that's the next big move that the Mets would really like to make. So would the Atlanta Braves. So would the Cincinnati Reds. I think those are the three teams right now that I'm hearing that are are a possibility for Real Muto. Uh, I, I, I just think that I wouldn't get hung up yet, particularly with the bullpens with any ball club, because that to me is a living, breathing organism more than starting pitches. I think you got to lock in with your starting pitches pretty early on where the bullpen, you can do a lot of mixing and matching and that's going to come with time. So I, I would be, you know, if if they're not in on say like a David Robertson or a Zach Britton or or you know guys of that ilk, you know I I think we're gonna have to wait and see until if they can really land Real Muto and if them then if they can do that, then I think you'll you'll see uh, more of an emphasis. But hey, look, you got the best clo- probably the best closer in baseball right now who's gonna make six hundred thousand dollars next year. You throw in. <laughs> Your setup man, who you know that you've had in the past, making ten million dollars a year. So you know at your back end you're okay, but what else are you going to get out of your bullpen? I think they're still figuring that out. And once again, everybody on the Long Ball Podcast with Andrew Brown, we have the one and only Wayne McDowell Jr. Forbes and Forbes dot com. Last question here, Wayne. Uh, again. 
What is, as you look forward, you know, the winter meetings, as you mentioned, I agree with you, they're kind of, they're not as, I guess, ex- impactful. There's always excitement around it, but man, it, with, with Harper and Machado and the likes, and Scott Boris loving to draw out this whole process and be the last man standing, so to speak, what are you, what's, what are you looking forward to uh, coming out of here? And, uh, you know, aside from the Corey Kluber and Trevor Bauer situation, what are the things, what else is really catching your eye about what could happen down the road here? The dark horse teams. I, I, I think that's what I'm always curious about. And what comes to my mind right away is uh, back in the winter, during the winter meetings of uh, 2008, it was uh, the Boston Red Sox signing Mark Teixeira. He's signed, sealed, and delivered. Well, right before Christmas, the Yankees came in and, and swooped in. So I'm looking for that type of thing happening. And, you know, what, what I get a kick out of right now is uh, all this talk about Bryce Harper not being in on the Yankees and all of this stuff. But what if the Yankees move one of their outfielders to get a JT Realmuto? And, and they, they're, they're the dark horse team on that. And then all of a sudden, there's an opening. So I'm looking forward to situations like that. Or I'll give you another example. What if the Dodgers do what they want to do and they move uh, Yasiel Puig, you know, if they move Matt Kemp, or uh, the, uh, the Marlins get what they want and a, a Cody Bellinger? Well, then in a case like that, the Dodgers might come into play with a guy like Harper. So, you know, we're hearing a lot about the Phillies and the White Sox right now. I'm looking forward to those dark horse teams that kind of come in and steal the headlines. So that's going to be exciting for me. I'm really big into the Kluber Bauer stuff and see how that plays out. I'm really fascinated about the whole Real Muto situation and the type of prospects that the Marlins can possibly get for him. And, you know, looking at a guy like Heichel, will he go to a team like the Reds or the Braves, where, in my opinion, he can be a difference maker on those ball clubs, um, but will he be asking for you know the five years, hundred million dollars? So for me, there's so much fun left to go uh, in this uh, off season, and I just look forward to seeing what happens. Well, I'm right there with you. Very excited to see what goes down, but uh, very happy to have had this conversation here. Again, everybody, with the one and only Wayne McDonald Jr. of Forbes Sports Money and Forbes dot com. Wayne, always a pleasure to talk baseball with you. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Andrew. Always fun talking with you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that will wrap up another edition, the second edition of the Long Ball Podcast with Andrew Brown. We covered a lot of stuff there with Wayne McDonald Jr. Again, a Forbes, sportsmoneyforbes.com. Check him out on Twitter at WM. At WMCDON25. That's WMCDON25 on Twitter. Also, make sure to just check him out. Go to Forbes.com slash sports money, and he'll be there with all types of great content for you to watch out for. So, again, hopefully you enjoyed the conversation of MLB Offseason talking more. I will have many more conversations with Wayne in the future. So, if you want more, uh, please go out and let me know if you want more. We'll definitely have some. But uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening in. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, this is the Long Ball Podcast with Andrew Brown. I'll see you next time.